It's Jim, it's Thursday the 1st of September 2022. This is the World of Bonds. It's a special edition. We're here today with Randeep Samel, fund manager and political expert. This is a kind of political autumn special before season eight of Uncle Jim's World of Bonds resumes later this year. Loads going on politically, Randeep. Um, you're going to talk us through some of it. So uh, a menu would include the UK, the US, Europe's energy crisis, what's going on in China, Russia, the death of Mikhail Gorbachev earlier this week. Tons going on. Should we start with the UK? It's a good place to start. Um, next week, we'll know who the new Prime Minister is going to be. Um, it looks like it's going to be Liz Truss. We're in a world where sterling's had its worst month since brexit where the 10-year gilt yield has gone to nearly 3.2 percent this morning um, where we're going to see a fall in real earnings for people in the uk to a level that we've last seen in 2003 it looks like a, a dumper fire dumpster fire or whatever you say uh, what can liz trust do is she definitely going to win and what happens next it, it, can she survive a year it's a good question, yes. We've got yet another Conservative Prime Minister taking over. Um, like you say, she comes into a very, very poor backdrop. Inflation, in energy costs rising, it looks like we're going to fall into a recession at the same time the Bank of England is raising rates. Um, her party has the worst poll ratings it's had for quite some time, and she has 28 months before she has to call another election. I think she will wait as long as she can to call an election and she needs to get policy on the ground incredibly quickly in order to improve her poll ratings. Now she's clearly taken a bit of a stand. Don't forget Liz Truss was once a Liberal Democrat. She's had quite the political change over the last few years. She was also an ardent Remainer. She's now a, a very much a pro-Lever and doesn't think Boris Johnson has done enough in order to extricate ourselves from EU laws. So I think she'll be doing a fair amount, both in changing laws away from what we have from the EU. But the big thing she has to tackle, like a lot of European leaders are going to have to tackle as we go into winter, is this energy crisis and providing more support for both households and businesses um, in order to get through the next six months, which are going to be critical for all leaders across Europe. Nothing, but, nothing she said so far would suggest that She's got any plans? I mean, this may be electioneering for her base that she needs to win the election, but um, nothing she said so far would seem to have any impact, significant impact on the households that are going to be hurting the most this winter. Is that, is that fair? But that's fair, and, and nor would I expect it to. She's playing to a base of relatively well off 160,000 Conservative Party members that require to vote her in. So she, she's actually been quite smart. She's talked you know, a lot about the EU, about dropping taxes, about law and order, which is kind of the bread and butter. Abolishing think, speed limits. <laughs> indeed. So. Um, but I think the real work will begin um, as soon as she takes power, which is likely to be early next week. Um, I suspect the civil service are already working on this. The current Chancellor Nadim Zahawi is out in the US currently trying to get more gas um, into, the, into the British grid over that period of time. So I think the policies will becoming more evident then. They're just not vocal right now because that's not what she needs to do, nor can she actually affect it at this stage. Okay, um, let's... I mean, you're going to read so much about this over the next couple of days or so. So let's talk about an area of politics that probably people in the UK in particular don't follow as closely, and that's the US, because we've got midterm elections coming up in November. 
There's loads going on, really, um, including, I hadn't realised that Biden has put his candidacy papers in. Is, is that a done deal? Is he definitely going to stand next time for president? Well, it means he can stand. I think what he's concerned about now is becoming a lamed-up president. When everyone sees, well, he's 78. He is, let's be quite frank, a little dithery when he speaks now. But he has now submitted his candidacy, uh, candidacy papers alongside Vice President Kamala Harris, whether that potentially is to kneecap her of starting her own run, although she can, of course, still do that, and he doesn't need to run. But I think what he's trying to show in the lead-up to these elections is that he's not a lame duck. He needs to win. He's raring to go. And if this is true, at the age of 82, he'll be running for re-election. Wow. Well, let's talk about the midterms then, because up until, I guess, a few months ago, it was a kind of done deal that the Democrats would lose everything and that's looking a bit less likely despite their own cost of living crisis in america that that has been the kind of number one concern for voters inflation hasn't it um and yet the democrats seem to be having a bit of a resurgence that's right the democrats currently have wafer thin majorities in both houses of the u.s congress tiny tiny majority in the house which is 435 members and it's 50 50 in the Senate with the vice president as president of the Senate able to cast um, a deciding vote. So most presidents lose and lose quite badly when it comes to the midterms. The only the only times in the last 50 years where that's not been the case is Bill Clinton 1998 after the Monica Lewinsky scandal rather ironically and also George Bush 2002 after 9-11. After that I think Barack Obama referred to 2010 two years into his tenure as a shellacking. So everyone was expecting a major shellacking for Joe Biden. Now why isn't that transpiring? I think the Democrats will still lose the House and we're likely to see the last of Nancy Pelosi as Speaker. But the reason is, quite frankly, is that Trump still remains very unpopular with independents in the US, but very popular with the Republican base. And a lot of the candidates, especially for the US Senate, that have won their um, primaries are Trumpites. And they seem to be putting the general population off. And that's uh, Dr. Oz in um, Pennsylvania, and also um, Herschel Walker, a very famous black um, American football player in the state of Georgia. And they seem to have very extreme views, which the independents don't seem to be latching onto, and they're way behind in the polls. So there is a chance that the Democrats, against all odds, will likely keep the Senate. But however, the House is probably gone and it does mean we're going to have a split um, government going into next year. So the House will have probably a majority leader and speaker now, Kevin McCarthy of California, a Republican in charge, whereas the Senate will stay Democratic. So it won't, you know, budgetary matters still need to go through Congress, but judicial appointments go through the Senate. Any cabinet level appointments go through the Senate. So it means that Joe Biden will likely keep those. Okay, and let's talk about Trump that you you mentioned because we talked about Biden submitting his Kansas City papers. Um, Trump's going to run again, and will he will he get it? And you know we've seen um, Liz Cheney potentially throw a hat into the ring. Um, there's also Florida, DeSantis. Uh, what's who's who's going to get it? 
it, I, I would say even at this stage, it's probably too early to say. All intimations from former President Donald Trump is that he intends to run again. He still remains incredibly popular with the Republican base and this theory that the last election was stolen from him. So this is effectively a rerun of 2020 for him to rightly regain the presidency. And, and does it get him out of some jeopardy... Um criminal jeopardy as well were, were he even even running might put him beyond the the hands of the law to some extent let alone if he was to become president again yeah i mean that, that that's an interesting way of looking at it and um, presidents can't be prosecuted as as an ordinary citizen which donald trump is now can be prosecuted they have to be prosecuted by the u.s house and impeached formally by two-thirds of the u.s senate so it makes it incredibly difficult to do so potentially, yes, him running does get him out of that. I think it bodes quite a difficult problem, which, like you say, Liz Cheney has appreciated, having lost her seat in, in a very Republican state of Wyoming, that while Trump will likely, if he were to run, win the nomination, however, he would likely lose a vote um, for the presidency. Um, if you're a Republican and you think to yourself, well, the country's in a bad way, we can easily um, take back the, the White House, Trump is not your candidate. Um, governor DeSantis, again you mentioned, he's the current governor, a young governor of Florida, is very popular, most likely would be a shoo-in should he run for the presidency. The biggest obstacle for him now isn't the 2024 election, it's actually winning the Republican primary. Um, previously, Republican voters have been quite pragmatic. They have realised that the most important thing is to win. Um, so let's just pick the best candidate, which I think is what they did in 2020 with Donald Trump. So it's whether that pragmatism comes back to the fore or whether this Trump hold remains on the party. That's yet to be seen. OK, right. Um, let's move on then from the United States and think about Europe, because the European recession is probably the number one um, issue for politicians there with the reliance on Russian gas. Um, we've got a, a German coalition that's yet to be tested. We've kind of uh, Merkel's legacy has somewhat been tarnished, and let alone the legacy of the SPD before her, which seems to be uh, inexplicably intertwined with Gazprom to some extent there. And then we've got Macron, and he's lost his majority. What else is going on in Europe? What, what should we be thinking about Italy always? But, uh, you know, what what else? <laughs> Well, well, let's start with Germany. I mean, first of all, like you say, we have a, I think it's called a traffic light coalition, the Liberals, the Greens and the Socialists in charge of Germany. They haven't really been tested. It's, it's, it doesn't have a huge majority either. The SDP, Olaf Scholz, his party has been very close to Russia in the past. The former SDP um, Chancellor of Germany, Gerhard Schroeder, up until recently was the chairman of Gazprom and has been very closely intertwined with Russians. But you're absolutely right. I mean, the Germans have made themselves completely hostage when it comes to their energy policy to the Russians, and they're seeing it now played out for political purposes. Germany is the industrial powerhouse of the EU and all of Europe, including the UK in that matter. Um, they require cheap energy to keep their manufacturing base going, and that is pretty much disappearing. So the situation is perilous. It is after, after the UK left, the largest single contributor by some distance now to the EU budget. 
Um, and what they need now and what they don't have is a cohesive, independent energy policy. And this is unfortunately a legacy of Angela Merkel. You know, she literally led by opinion poll over her 17 years. No one conducted more opinion polls than she did. She put cobbled together coalitions, depending on whatever the opinion polls told her. And she was unfortunately unable in a lot of cases to make very tough decisions. She made easy decisions. And we're seeing that now play out in the energy policy, the shutting down of nuclear, um, not exploring Japan, the gas. Japan, of course, turning their nuclear back on now. Exactly. And even the Dutch government now, having a policy of no new nuclear, has have started approving new nuclear power plants, as are Eastern European countries. The UK, of course, has reignited its, one for a better word, its nuclear plans under a conservative government. Um, I think all of Europe, but especially Germany now, needs to relook at its entire energy policy, both from a, from a carbon perspective, but also an independence perspective, because they've realised now they've let this situation fall out of their hands too quickly. And Macron, is he, is he, he a lame duck at the moment or is that loss of majority not so relevant? So while, while President Macron roared back to victory in the presidential race in France earlier this year, normally French voters do reward an incoming president. The parliamentary elections occur a couple of months later with a majority in parliament. That hasn't been the case. He has lost his parliamentary majority. So like you say, he is a bit of a lame duck. A lot of the reform agenda that he had on, increasing, reducing pensions, increasing the age at which you can retire, reducing some of the benefits that a lot of the, um, the government staff um, have in France now are, are pretty much in ruins. He can't get any of that through. The other parties don't really like him. Remember, En Marche is a relatively new political party and a new political phenomenon for France. I suspect before um, the end of next winter, he will have to then reconduct parliamentary elections and hope to win. If he doesn't win that, then you're right. He is pretty much a lamed up president. Uh, waiting out his term, he won't be able to get much through. At a really difficult time. And let, let's finish on Europe, on, on Italy then, because we have got elections later this month. Um, it looks like it's going to be far-right coalition gets in there. Um, it looks like, though, that coalition is not talking about Italian exit from the EU in the way that it was maybe a couple of years ago. Yeah. I mean, to be, I, I'm not sure how Italy could actually consider leaving the EU or even the Eurozone at the moment. They are now so dependent, especially their financial system, on the EU. I mean, um, the, the two-year, I mean, you'll know this better than me, but the two-year bond, the Treasury bonds in Italy yield lower than the UK and the US at the moment. But that's mainly because they have ECB backing. If they didn't have that, they would, they would be in a world of issues. So it looks as if Giorgia Maloney, Italy's first ever female prime minister, um, is likely to win um, in October and become the first female prime minister. Uh, Italy has elections so often, the coalitions never last. Uh, so it's difficult to say how long this one will last. You're actually going into this yet again in another crisis. You know, when it comes to energy policy, Italy is incredibly reliant on Russian gas. They also have, especially in the north, quite a manufacturing industry which requires cheap energy, that will then fall foul. I'll be, you know, it's anyone's guess to how long this coalition will be, will be able well, to cobble together. Um, just on that, why do Italian coalitions not last? They're so fractured. You have so many different parts of different parties coming together, unable 
um, to form policy. We've seen even this sort of technocratic leadership under um, a well-respected former head of the former ECB, Mario Draghi. You would have thought even that could hold and you had quite sensible centre-left coalition partners with him. But it couldn't. I mean, unfortunately, they, they I can only explain it as a rush of blood to their head or thinking that they'll become prime minister as well. And um, culturally, this is just how Italian politics works. Unfortunately, it's not very good for the country. It's not very good for the EU. But um, until they effectively change their voting system, this is, effect- this is how it will stay. OK. Right. The other place we've got elections, if you can call them elections, is in uh, China. We've got the 20th National Congress meeting in October, so in about a month's time. And at that, we're going to get President Xi uh, possibly inaugurated as lifetime leader. Um, And you told me that's the kind of people's leader title last held by... Uh, Mao Zedong. Gone. So what what does it mean? Yes, it means potentially we have a new Chairman Mao. Um, like you mentioned, you know, it's called an election, but at least in China you had a policy whereby you could only stand for two terms and you'd get a change of leader, you'd get some fresh thinking from the Communist Party, whose leader would then obviously go on to be the president of China. Um, Xi Jinping has thought very differently now. He was a he was a reluctant leader eight years ago, but he seems to have got into the <laughs> got into the spirit of things, and decided he wants to stay on. Now it's difficult from an outsider to understand what's going on, whether communist party politics and it 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 is turning quite fractious, whether he is just the sort of you know the the leader that everyone can agree on. So rather than turning out into external fighting, we have him, or whether he has just literally got power rushing to him. But is it, is it an election? Who who gets to vote? And is there a chance he doesn't win? And, you know, there's lots of theories, aren't there, that the Chinese extreme lockdown, we saw last night, actually, there's a new severe lockdown in China thanks to some uh, a big cluster of COVID cases. Yeah. The rest of the world doesn't care. We know that Chinese vaccine was not very effective, and no. so there were some some issues there but the rest of the world has opened up china remains locked down but the argument was that after these elections you know he just wants to maintain some degree of stability i don't know what what the advantage of having a lockdown is but nevertheless um after that there'll be a a reopening and he can deal with some of these other problems such as the real estate sector and the economic woes that china like the rest of the world faces at the moment so is it an election and why has he continued the lockdown? Yeah. Um, well, it's not really an election. It's the, it's the standing committee of the, the Chinese Communist Politburo that will effectively decide who their leader is. It's about a thousand in number of the people that that is. Um, and they're taken from the different parts of the region. They all have to pledge their undying loyalty to the leader who's then put in place to pretty much do whatever they want. Um, I, I believe the COVID lockdowns are happening is that he doesn't want the situation falling out so bad that he potentially doesn't have re-election. Now, China kept locking down, so COVID hasn't really spread as much, um, although it's difficult to get data on China, of course, but it hasn't really spread. What he doesn't want is a mass outbreak. And like you say, the Sinopharm vaccine has been pretty appalling. And the reason, again, we don't get data from China, but they sold it to the Brazilians. And the Brazilians using it so that the efficacy was incredibly poor, below 50%. So he realised that immunisation isn't really within the Chinese population. He is running for leader. What he doesn't want is a mass catastrophe on his hands that potentially upsets his inauguration as people or lifetime leader. So that's why he's trying not to rock the boat in terms of doing anything there. 
And is he being belligerent around Taiwan for the same reasons? Is, is this a, a show of strength ahead of that, or, or is, it, is this going to carry on and escalate further? The, the, the Chinese government have always said that Taiwan is a part of China and one day they will formally, you know, it's called, they refer to it as the Republic of China in Taiwan and that one day it will be a more formal part. We've obviously seen them do that in Hong Kong, having originally agreed to one party, two systems, or one country, two systems. That's clearly not the case. They have now made sure that the leaders there are uh, directly anointed by the Chinese government in Beijing. I think they want exactly the same thing for Taiwan. And we're seeing that now in terms of policy spread to the rest of the world when it comes to defence policy. Uh, the Chinese, the Indians, the Japanese and the South Koreans are now saying that they will formally defend or help Taiwan defend itself. But also in economic policy when it comes to what gets exported out of China you know, clearly the US government, and we can touch on this later in their semiconductor bill, have realised that if an embargo has to be placed or the Chinese stop trade from leaving Taiwan, they don't want another supply chain issue hitting them. So policies around the world are changing dramatically in anticipation of that might be an occurrence. Right. OK, talking about the other um, big geopolitical actor at the moment, Russia, um, the what sanctions are they working? Is Putin's position as strong as it was, or with the setbacks that he's had militarily, is he is is there any chance? Is there any hope that uh, I don't know? I, I wouldn't say that he'd be overthrown because we see what happens to people who who oppose him still. I mean, they fall out morning, of windows, don't they? Yeah, the CEO of Luke Oil fell out of a window this morning. Yeah. Um, you know what what what's the prospects for for Russia? I mean, like you say, he runs a, a reign of terror. He has a security force monitoring his security force now to make sure that they are, don't have any infiltrators trying to overthrow him. Um, the situation remains quite bad. For him, it's now a face-saving exercise. He will can simply continue going on. We've seen from space now the amount of gas they are having to burn. Mm. Um, and the amount of carbon that they are emitting, because obviously they simply now just can no longer sell this. Um, the, the one report that I would probably instruct everyone to take a look at, Yale have actually put together quite a comprehensive report of where they believe Russia is now post these sanctions, a lot of the, the economics and political professors there. And while it's very difficult to get information out of Russia, and the Russian government, of course, are claiming that it's business as usual and everything's fine, the Russian population and the Russian economy is quite clearly hurting now. Um, and, you know, it's, 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 it's there to be seen how long this can continue. But um, it is having a detrimental effect on both the population and the economy as a whole. Um, but I think the Russian leader is fully aware that Europe now, with the cut off its gas, doesn't have the infrastructure in place um, to uh, substitute all of the Russian gas. So he's hoping, and as we've seen as of yesterday, they have officially shut down Nord Stream again completely um, with German storage levels at about 79%. So he's hoping you know, a really brutal winter to hope that the, the European Union blinks. Yeah. And that's effectively, if we can get through, if Europeans, and I include the UK in this, if we can get through this winter, our position gets a lot better and his negotiating position gets a lot worse. But December, January is probably the peak uh, uh, problematic yeah, period. Point. Exactly. A final word then on Mikhail Gorbachev, I guess, who who died this, this week. Um, 
he he was the only I didn't know this the only leader of the Soviet Union who was actually born in the Soviet Union. All, all the others were born before the Soviet Union existed. That kind of shows the yeah. that that they like to elect old leaders um, to give themselves a chance uh, yeah. uh, the next shot. Um, he also produced that famous Pizza Hut advert, didn't he? And he, did. um, he lived to see Pizza Hut leave Russia again um, he did as, as sanctions bit. What, what's his legacy? I mean, his legacy is he actually came in as a reformer. Mikhail Gorbachev was very much a reaction to Ronald Reagan becoming US president. Finally, you had a US president, mainly Reagan, but also the likes of Margaret Thatcher here in the UK, that actually said, no matter what, you know, we're going we're gonna to wait this thing out. This cannot go on any longer. We will increase defence budgets, even though our economies are hurting at the moment, to try and, like he said, you know, break the stranglehold that the Soviet Union had, not just on the people of Russia and Eastern Europe, but the world. And I think uh, Mikhail Gorbachev came in for the first time, an open-minded reformer that wanted to look at all of Russia and the Soviet Union and see what was going wrong. He didn't want the Soviet Union to end. He introduced glasnost and perestroika, which was openness post the Chernobyl uh, nuclear reactor meltdown, and also restructuring to try and get the Russian economy or the Soviet economy uh, backfiring. But I think even he would have realised that the, the, the Soviet economy was too far gone and it was the start of his policies that actually led to the formal breakup of the Soviet Union and in the institution of independent Eastern or former satellite states and the Russian Federation. So I think we can all look back and thank him that the process that he began led to the freedom that a lot of people today in Eastern Europe have. Unfortunately, the institutions were not in place in the Russian Federation that led to it maintaining its democ uh, democracy longer term, but at least we can say that it's in a lot, lot better position today than it was then. Cool. Better leave it there. Thank you very much, Randik Samel. That was uh, brilliant as always. And uh, catch you soon. Thank you.